0: This past couple weeks for me, a bit of an emotional week. Um, I once heard a, a little talk by this guy. He, the title of his sermon was, It's All About the Dash. It's All About the Dash. Um, and, and, and what he was talking about was the dash in the middle of a particular date and then another date. Um, walked through a cemetery And you'll see the dash on every tombstone. Um, For people like us, the dash is merely something that stands in the middle of two different dates and years. But for people who knew that individual, that dash represents a whole life story. Um, It's all about the dash. Uh, uh, Two weeks ago, my uncle passed away with lung cancer. Um, I didn't know him really that well. I knew him when I was in Korea, um, came to the States a few years after we immigrated, um, lived out in California for, for many years, and uh, he was 54, 54 years old, and uh, his tombstone will have uh, a year, dash, and another year. Um, it's ironic that this morning with the children singing and all of us You know, uh, enjoying that. Um, I I don't want to be morbid, but I just got to put this out there. Like all of us are born with an expiration date. And here's the thing I say to you guys all the time, and I will say it continually. Our greatest fear in life should not be and will not be, my prayer, that we would fail at something. Our greatest fear in life should be that we would succeed at something in life that really doesn't matter. Our greatest fear should be that at the end of the day, it's all said and done, what that dash would say to those who knew us and what that would represent would not be that oh so-and-so lived their life fully, but at the end of the day, they uh, wound up succeeding at something that really didn't matter. Um, you know why the early church was so powerful and effective as we started in the early church? They died well. They died the best. Really. The people saw the early believers, early Christians, and they were blown away by their lives, the beauty of it, and the way they died. They died the best, and so they changed, and they won their culture. They won their world for Christ. And I ask ourselves all the time, Do we as people merely exist, survive, or do we live lives of beauty and we die the best? That when people see that dash on our tombstone someday, they would say, he lived well. Yeah, I'm talking to you 22-year-olds. You're going, I have my whole life ahead of me. What you decide now will will set the trajectory of the rest of your life. And what you will pursue and what you will value and what you will give your life for. What your dash will ultimately say about you. Oh, no, that's a morbid thought. It was just a reality check for me, you know? 54 years old and lung cancer. Boom. Wow. Oh, by the way, um, he uh, became a Christian in his late 20s, gave his life to Jesus, Jesus, Um, became a chaplain and worked in a hospital for the last 15 years working with sick folks sitting by their bedside sharing the gospel when appropriate to those who would hear. I would say he died well. So on that thought Acts chapter 16, it's all connected, you'll see, it's all connected. Acts chapter 17, I'm sorry, verse 16. We're going to finish this little section here with Paul in Athens, okay? We're going to finish this little section here with Paul in Athens today. It's part three of our sermon on Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. And what we've basically said, those of you joining us for the first time, is Paul... Uh, shows us how to minister, share the gospel in a context in which uh, the worldview does not take into account a biblical God, a world in which pluralism, relativism, whichever God you want to worship is fine with you, but don't shove it down my throat. In that context, Paul shares the gospel, and we said there's sort of five movements. First is what Paul felt, second is what Paul saw, third is where Paul went, and today we see what Paul did and what Paul said. Okay, So verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and I'll talk about them in a moment, began to dispute with Paul. Some, Some of them said, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. The Epicureans and the Stoics were two sort of predominant dominant philosophical schools of thought at the time, and they were actually sort of opposite. The Epicureans saw gods as personal, intimate, but really detached and remote from everyday affairs. It was very popular amongst the upper class, okay, the educated and the wealthy, okay? And, and the goal for them, end of life, was about pleasure and pursuing pleasure, the Stoics, on the other hand, were opposite. They saw God actually as being very involved, sort of a life force, if you will, but someone who you didn't get to know. You couldn't be intimate. You couldn't be close to. And instead of stressing pleasure at the end of all things, they stretched duty and restraining your desires, okay? Two predominant schools of thought. What does Paul do in Athens in this cultural context, in this cultural uh, milieu of sort of, relativism, pluralism. We talked about this a little bit last week and I want to pick up on that. Paul, verse 18, preached Jesus and the resurrection. What did Paul bring out in the marketplace as he went into public square? Pay attention to how different this is from our culture today. Paul went there and he said, look, I'm not saying that Christianity is true if it works for you. He says it works for you because it's true. Okay? Our culture says what? Christianity, Buddhism, whatever. Hey, it's true if it works for you, whatever. And and, and Christianity says, no, 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 you don't. It works for you because it's, say it with me, true. Okay? Love these friendly faces. Are you visiting today? Yes? Are you parents of somebody? I'm sorry, I do this with our congregation. Are you, uh see, this is the reason why nobody speaks up. (laughs) Because if you do, he picks on me. Welcome. I want to say welcome. Okay, Paul says, look, look, Christianity isn't true if it works. He says, he says, Christianity isn't relevant if it works for you. He says it works for you because it's relevant. Right. And furthermore, he doesn't come and say Christianity is true. You know, if it changes your life, he says it changes your life because it's true. This is if Paul was around today and he looked at how churches and Christians did evangelism he would go ah because to Paul listen talking about Christianity by making a pragmatic emotional appeal you know you need Jesus cuz it give you peace in your heart You know, you need Jesus because, you know, he'll answer your prayer. You need Jesus because he'll make your life. He would have pulled his hair out and said, where is that in the Bible? He didn't make a pragmatic appeal to believe in Christ. He came and said, it's true. He died. He rose again. And it will change your life. It will work for you. And it is relevant because it's true. Do you see the difference? Even the church was so influenced by this mentality. Listen, let me just say it in the strongest way possible. Christianity is worthless if it's not true. Christianity is worthless if it's not true. I don't care if it's as good teaching. I don't care if it's good philosophy. I don't even care if it's helpful. If it's not true, it's worthless paul's words not mine when he says in 1 corinthians 15 14 and if christ has not been raised our preaching is useless and so is your faith do you know why this is so important for me because many of you out there have a warped view of christianity What view if your view of Christianity is if I believe then my life will go well? What happens if your life doesn't go well? Oh, it can't be true. What happens if you think of Christianity is it's true because it works? You know? It gives me energy. It gives me kind of life power. It gives me kind of and what happens when you no longer feel the life power and no longer works? Okay, let me give you the clearest example. Why do you respond the way you do when your prayers don't get answered? Why do, you, why do we, I, uh, respond the way I do when my prayers don't get answered? Because my worldview of Christianity says if I behave or I pray really hard or I stay out of trouble or I... Then God, Christianity... It's worthless if it's not true. Jesus will work for you only if you are true to Him, whether He works for you or not. Come to Jesus not because He's fulfilling or He's helpful, meets your needs. Come to Jesus because He's true. Don't don't come to Him simply get your prayers answered. Come to Him because He's God. If you seek to meet him in order to have your needs met, you will neither meet him nor have your needs met. Say it again. (laughs) Come on. I'm just kidding with you. Come on, man. I live this. I breathe this. This is my head. I don't need to look at my notes. If you seek to meet him in order to get your needs met, you will neither meet him nor get your needs met. Now check this out. So what does Paul say? What is true? He says, he says two things here. He says, Jesus is God. Verse 18. He's preaching the good news about Jesus. And it's interesting because he doesn't say preaching good news about Jesus Christ. In other words, he's talking to a member, an audience that's unfamiliar with the Old Testament, the messianic promise. So he proclaims essentially the deity of Christ. Can I say this? Our lives will be radically changed or not changed, starting with our decision about who Jesus is. Who you think Jesus is will determine what your life will look like. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors. Anybody else like C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis, yeah. Is anybody else like, I have to read like one chapter like five times. Is it because I'm dumb? Anybody else relate? Raise your hands. Okay, so it's not just me. I'm like, what did that mean? You know? And then certainly in the help watching the movies either, you know? Many of you guys might not know, did you know that C.S. Lewis was actually raised in a Christian home? But he became an atheist when God didn't answer his prayers for his dying mother. And his atheism gained legs when under the tutelage of an atheist mentor. And then he goes to Oxford, comes out even more hardened towards Christianity. His journey towards Christianity went from atheist then to agnostic then to theist where he believed gods but his journey from theist believing that they're gods to to Christianity came when he really paid attention to what Jesus said and I've read this many times but I need to read it again not just for non-christian in our room today because there are quite a few but also for you Christians very familiar This is what Jesus said, and this is born out of his testimony. I'm trying to prevent anybody from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing we must not say. A man was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be a lunatic on a level with the madman who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Look, you got to make your choice. Either this man wasn't, is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You could shut him up for a fool. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon, but you, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with this patronizing nonsense about him being a a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He didn't produce that effect on anybody who actually met him. He produced three effects. People hated him, people were terrified of him, or they fell down and adored him. There was no chase of expressing mild approval. Jesus says, if you really, 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 really pay attention to Jesus and what he said, there's only three choices. He was either a liar because he knew he wasn't God, and yet he said he was, or he was a lunatic. In other words, you know, he, he really, really believed that he was God or he was Lord. And if you and I choose to believe that he's not a liar, he is not a lunatic, listen carefully. And we believe that he is Lord or he is ruler, then we are accepting his right, not just to rule over the universe, but to rule over what? Our lives. If he is Lord of the universe, then we allow him to take central place in our lives. Many of us, most of us in this room, think that we're good people who on rare occasions, you know, do sort of bad things, so we're better off than most people. Let me tell you something. The test of where you and I are with God today ultimately comes down not to what we've done or not done. The ultimate test of where we are with God today is, is God of supreme importance to us? If God is not of supreme importance to us, He is, listen, no importance at all. If God Choose to believe he's a liar. Choose to believe he's crazy. If you believe he is Lord, test of whether you believe he is Lord is, if God is not of central importance to you, he is of no importance. There's no in-between. If Jesus is God, he is the most important thing in your life. His will, his agenda, his goal. If Jesus is God, here's your prayer, my prayer. Listen, Jesus, take anything from my life as long as I have you. Bring anything into my life as long as I have you. All that matters is I have you. Anybody who has met Jesus, the real Jesus is Lord. That is your prayer and you mean it and if you don't believe that Jesus is God there's nothing more important than to find out whether he is There's nothing more important than to find out whether he... It's Blaise Pascal, the famed philosopher, said this. Every single one of us in this room has made a bet with our lives. We've committed. We've committed that there is either God or there is no God. All of us have committed and we've bet our lives our eternity and we're living our lives according to it. Now, that doesn't prove that atheism is irrational. It proves that being indifferent is very irrational. I don't care if he's God or not. Jesus, son of God? That's crazy. That's, there are no pat answers in life. That is a pat answer to say, Jesus can't be God. I'm not even going to check into it. Jesus is God. <laughs> well, I thought he was kind of like a vitamin, you know, something you take once in a while to give you a little boop. No. I thought it was kind of like a supplement, you know, something, but no. Jesus is Lord or He is nothing. I know this sounds so oh, in our heads, right? Those of you that grew up in church, like, oh, God. <laughs> that sounds harsh. That sounds too demanding. That sounds. Like the Bible. Oh, okay. <laughs> Truth of Christianity, Jesus is God. Truth of Christianity number two that Paul talks about, Jesus rose from the dead. Do you realize how silly this is? Uh, uh, Nate, Nate Noonan and I were talking about that. He said, he said Peter, do you realize, you know, you know what we do on Sundays? We're a bunch of people that get together who actually believe that some dude died and, like, rose again. It's like, I wonder if people ever think about that. And I said to him, I said, I guarantee most of the people don't think about that. Because we don't talk a lot about that in church, right? Oh, Easter, Jesus rose from the dead. But, you know, it's always tied to the whole thing of what problems can you rise from? Please. Again, it's got to be about you, you know? No, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Let me put it in the strongest term possible. If Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, declaring himself to be the son of God, then it really, at the end of the day, doesn't matter whether you believe why God allows evil and suffering in the world. (laughs) Can I get an amen if you believe it? If Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, declaring himself to be the Son of God, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. But what about all those people that have never heard Jesus and they die? What about them? If Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, declaring himself the Son of God, then it really doesn't matter whether Christianity works for you whether there are things in the Bible you disagree with. Because if Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, you've got to believe Him. And submit to Him. And cry out, Lord. Well, I don't, I don't believe in the resurrection. That, that's, that's dumb. That's crazy. Bodily resurrection from Jesus. Again, can I just tell you? Then find out whether it happened. If you're not a Christian, you know Well, it's just, who, what? That's impossible. Well, let me tell you, the the worldviews at the time this happened was impossible for them to believe. It was improbable. There were two main worldviews or thoughts. There was the Greek thought. And here's what the Greek school of thought that was predominant in that culture. Here's what their worldview said. Their worldview said the body, the matter, is evil. It's dirty. And people need to be free from that to what's really good, the essence of, which is the spirit and the soul. So to believe that somebody could actually want to come back in their bodies, Woo-hoo. No thoughtful Greek person at the time would have been like, I could get on board with that. That'd be like, why? Not even did it happen. People would be like, why would you want that to happen? The Jews, the Jews didn't believe. They believed in a resurrection. But at the very end, for all of God's people, where God was going to rid all the world of evil and suffering. So they didn't believe it. But to claim that there was one guy in the middle of history with all the evil and suffering still around, it was even more impossible, you see, friends, for the Jews to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And yet, check this out, overnight, people's worldviews changed. Now, did you ever think about this? Worldviews don't change overnight. You know what I'm saying? Well, maybe one person, oh, worldview, I decided to change how I see the whole world. But an entire society, overnight, it happened. Why? These people went around and said, Jesus rose from the dead. And they gave their lives for it, declaring it. Jesus rose from the dead. If you're not a Christian, you're a skeptic, you're like, oh, baby, you are a Christian. You're going, Jesus rose from the dead? Really? That's what I believe? (laughs) Yeah, that's what you believe. I don't know if I believe that. Here's what I want you to do. Don't brush it on the rug and go, well, it's, it's too, oh, my gosh, if I don't believe it, then that'll, that'll just, my faith will crumble. I'd say let it crumble, build it back up on a solid foundation that says Jesus Christ is God, not your helper, and he rose from the dead. Let's keep going. Verse 19. So then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, the Mars Hill. This was sort of the town council of Athens, if you will. By the way, this was filled with some of the brightest people. One commentator said, Mars Hill, Areopagus, it would have been like Paul is standing in front of the faculties of Princeton, Harvard, and Yale put together. So he is standing in front of intellectual giants, he says. "Where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about listening to the latest ideas. I'm going, did they not have jobs? What did they do? Anybody, anybody work in Athens? Okay, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, at Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. And by the way, Paul wasn't kind of giving them a bone because Areopagus, here's what they were known for. When they sent somebody who was presenting a case, they wanted to kind of, you know, brown nose them they were immediately dismissed. So these are people that were not only arrogant and proud, they also wanted people to keep it real. So when Paul says, very religious, they didn't take it as, stop giving a stupid, meaningless he, No, he was really saying, I see a very spiritual people. Observation, observation. For as I walked around and looked carefully at objects of worship, I even found an altar with this description, to an unknown God. Historians say... The reason why that altar was set up was because there was a major plague in Athens and it destroyed much of the the population. And they were afraid that that happened because there was some God that they missed. Can you imagine? We have 30,000 idols. We missed one. (laughs) We missed some God and he's angry with us. What should we do? Oh, I know. Set up an altar to an unknown God. and We'll say, if we offended anybody... Now what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. Okay, I'm going to have fun with you guys. Yeah, have fun with me. Okay, here's the important thing about this. Okay, there are two things, two principles. One, effective evangelism here begins with understanding where people are spiritually. You got to know where the itch is. You got to know where the spiritual itch is. Here's the thing. Here's what Christians. Let me give you an analogy. Okay. Non-Christians might be itching right here. Like, "Mm, what is that all about? Christians, we scratch right here. We're like scratching going, aren't you itchy over there? No, I'm not itchy over there. Here's what that looks like. We come to people and go, if you were to die tonight, would you? They're going, why would you even, why would you even ask that? Well, don't you think about that? No, I don't think about that. I don't even believe in heaven and hell. Oh, okay. Well, how? Instead of, addressing questions that people are asking, we have this huge thing where we say, these are the questions they must be asking. So I will figure out the answers to these. Listen, can I just tell you something? Half the things you think non-Christians are thinking about that you're preparing yourself to answer, they're going, I never even think about that. We get all stressed out because we're like, I got to figure out the... En-. They're going... Oh. So here's a question. How do we figure out what kind of questions they're asking? Hello say it again ask them or and both you you listen I know it's profound right you listen instead of going okay I started apologetics I read C.S. Lewis uh, uh, I did this year Bible Romans Road for spiritual laws I'm equipped I'm armed got the spiritual armor of Jesus Christ and here I go into battle you know, and it's like they're wearing a bathing suit and they go, let's go swimming. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> but I'm for. Pre- no, 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 let's, let's have some coffee. Co- what? Why would you. No, let's have some coffee. Coffee, really? Shoot, <laughs> I gotta take all this off. Okay. <laughs> I haven't even prepared for that. I don't know where that's coming from. I'm really tired. <laughs> you know, you take it off. So you have a coffee, right? And you do what? You listen and can i just tell you practical if you don't have any significant relationship with non-christians you have absolutely no idea what they're asking and you have no chance of knowing what their questions are none and believe me what your christian friends are wondering about not what they're wondering about so do you have significant relationship with non-christians i mean seriously people seriously those of you that are going yeah That's all I have is non-Christian friends. Don't be so smug and arrogant, okay? You know why we do community? Can I just tell you something? We do community so that within the context of community, you can be better equipped to reach your friends. Community groups don't exist for you to be narcissistic. Listen, context of relationship. couple more, couple more, real practical. Uh, Pay attention to our culture. How many of you guys watch television missionally? You just sucked the fun right out of it. Why would you want... No, here's what I mean. Missionally, do you know that all of the TV shows reveal some God or gods that our culture worships? How many of you guys watch TV missionally? Not for entertainment. Look, watching TV for diversion sake, like, oh, I just got to shut my brain off. Click. Listen, the whole me not think mentality is dangerous. How many of you guys watch TV missionally? Like, uh, what 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 are the gods? Because each TV show revealing gods about our culture that people are worshiping. Okay, parents, can I just say something? Because I know some parents are like, I don't let my children watch any television. There's a difference between naivete and innocence. Being naive doesn't set your children up for success in this culture that doesn't know god. So you know what I do? I watch television with my kids. Yes, there are times when I go, if I see Dora the Explorer one more time. <laughs> if I hear one more na 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 na, <laughs> if I hear one. But you know I watch it. Do you know that some of the worst Worst biblical messages are found in Disney? (laughs) I woke up a sleeping giant. Yes! I'm sorry. My own personal thing, I don't want to offend anybody. The whole PG-13 R rating, it's nonsense. There are some G-rated Disney movies that are worst biblical messages for your children. There's a difference, parents, between naivete and innocence. Radio. What are people talking about? Why are you talking about them? Sports radio. I listen to a lot of sports radio. Do you know why? So I can say this. Men, if what some 19-year-old kid does with the ball ruins your whole week, Okay, Anacana one, two, three, and how all the women in their church shall say preach. Ready? One, two, three. Three. (laughs) You guys, you don't think you don't think you don't think our culture worships idols? Are you kidding me? Right now, all across the country in about two hours, seventy thousand people will enter a sanctuary. (laughs) They will find their seats paid hefty money for it and they will spend hour and a half two hours yelling at the god of (laughs) pigskin and will walk out saying that they had a spiritual experience don't tell me that we weren't created to be worshipers you are worshipers all day every day sports radio internet you ever pay attention to social networking sites you know what they are they are catholic confessionals true people confess all kinds of things on social networking sites are you listening blogs magazines each magazine each magazine on the rec has its cover someone's version of heaven heaven is beauty so delivered from be delivered from hell by using products a b c and d and you could go to heaven Each magazine has this to cover. Someone's definition of heaven. And and lastly, go to people's third place where they play. What do I mean? In order to know where people are spiritually, people live in one place, people work in another, and then they play in another. The first two places they have no control over oftentimes. The third place is where they want to be. Go to places where people want to be and find out what questions they're asking. Second thing that Paul does, and this is a little... uh, See if it makes sense. Paul not only is attentive, but he lovingly points out the great contradiction in their lives. Paul lovingly points out the great contradiction in their lives. Look at the very end of verse 23 when he says, Now what you worship as something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. Everybody look up here. Have a look up here, okay? When Paul says, and tell I'm excited about this, and Paul says, now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. Here's what he's literally saying. He's saying, look, the God that I'm about to claim to you, proclaim to you, is the God that you already confess. or There's a God that you, you deny with your mouth and you deny with your mind, but you live like and you live as though He's there. Let me say it again. The word knowledge is found throughout, throughout this text like three, four times. Paul's saying, look, you secular philosophers, you say, oh, there is no God. There is no God. And you've got these proofs today. There is no this biblical God. But Paul's saying, your life says you believe that he's there. Your life says you believe that he's there. He's not trying to prove to them, look, rational like God is real. He says, you already believe it. I'm going to show you how you already believe it. By pointing out the contradiction in their lives. That what they say, one thing, and then they live another. Example, Howard Stern wrote a book called Private Parts. Don't read it. I know you want to understand culture and stuff, but there's certain things you're like, that's just garbage. So I would recommend not reading Howard Stern's book called Private Parts. He was on Jay Leno years back. And this is when TV critic wrote about what happened on that show. Listen. Howard Stern repeatedly provoked Leno with language and behavior that pushed way past the rules of live network TV. And you just imagine him doing it, Right stern was blowing right past them trying to provoke leno to make a moral judgment to say stop that you shouldn't be saying that stern repeatedly dared leno to play the moralist who presumes to tell others how to live the usually unflappable leno was visibly disturbed wanting to avoid making any moral judgment he tried to change the subject and tried to you know sorting through a bag of best-selling books that included stern's autobiography But refusing to be silenced, Howard Stern praised his own book, but but degraded and trashed every other book that Leno retrieved, resolutely challenging Leno to make some moral judgment. You getting the picture? But what Howard Stern did not see was the inordinate amount of zeal with which he did this. Howard Stern was extremely self-righteous in his determination of everybody else's self-righteousness. Stern was absolutely moralistic in his absolute insistence that no one else could make moral pronouncements. In short, he embodied the contradiction of our culture in living in vivid color. We say to people, nobody could say you should live like this. And yet, when we insist, you can't tell others that you should. You're doing the same. The truly significant moment came as the show was going to commercial break. Exasperated with Stern, Leno reached into his bag one last time and pulled out one more book, and it turned out to be a Bible. And for one brief moment, Leno turned prophet, holding it up, and looking into the camera, he simply said, you know? (laughs) I'm not going to do an impression. Leno looks in the camera. He says, you know, all of a sudden, everything in this makes perfect sense. We live in a culture that says, there there are no moral absolutes, and yet when you say there are no moral absolutes, we say there is no such thing as absolute truth. And yet the only way that you can know that there's no such thing as absolute truth is if you know absolute truth. You can't say, well, nobody can know everything. Well, the only way that nobody can know everything, the only way you can know that nobody knows everything is if you know everything. Does that make sense? Um, This is the air that we breathe. Relativism zealously fights to make sure no one believes in any absolutes while using their own absolutes to establish this idea. Okay, for those of us that are not like philosophical, you're like, woohoo! let me bring it this way. <sniffs> Another example, just real quick. People say that they don't believe in absolute truth. A lot of people in our world, even Christians, say, I wouldn't believe in absolute truth. Uh, this past week, Andre Agassi came out with a book called Open. And in it, he talked about his life. Andre Agassi, by the way, was a tennis player. Talked about his life. In particular, he talked about 1997-98 when he was addicted to methamphetamines for that entire year. I paid attention to his interview on, on Katie Couric, and he does what a lot of people do, writing books. You know what he said? He said, I just needed to get it out. I just needed to be open. I just needed to let people know. And it made me think, of this truth, did you realize that you and I were not designed to live a lie? I don't believe in moral absolutes. That's fine. I don't believe in objective truth. That's fine. But somehow, if you say you don't believe in absolute truth, you got to grapple with the unusual human phenomenon that we become psychologically and relationally sick when we're living a lie. And we become healthy and whole when we face the truth, even if it's more difficult than living a lie. A few good men. Jack Nicholson. Tom Cruise. Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise. You can't handle the truth! The problem isn't we can't handle the truth. problem is, we can't live without it. There are some of you living today a lie. Yeah, you're a Christian. And you're sick. You can say you don't believe in absolute truth, more truth. You were not created to live a lie. You're living a lie to yourself, to others. And you're becoming sick, friend. Your soul wasn't created with the capacity to live a lie. you ever think about this? The only reason why we would know and we know that we lie is because we, we know what the truth is. If you know what the truth is, you wouldn't be able to, we weren't designed to live or tell a lie. And Christians and not, there are many of you sitting here today, you are living a lie. And you know what the great news is? Jesus Christ didn't come and say, you're living a lie. There's truth. Go do those things and you'll be set free. No. Politicians, you love using the word, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And I want to go, you don't know what the heck even you're talking about. But Jesus said that to say, if you're living a lie, you're bound, you're addicted, you're afraid, you're scared, you're saying, if I begin to tell the truth and face myself and face the truth about who I am, where I'm at and what I'm doing, Peter, I might just, oh, you might just begin the process of healing and wholeness, not by following rules, but by Jesus Christ saying, I am the way, I am the truth. In other words, he said, in relationship with me. in relationship with me. The gospel says that truth became a person. Truth isn't some abstract thing out there. It's embodied in a person. You get to know him personally. Um, at the end of the service, we're doing communion, and today... I'm going to specifically ask some of you for courage because if you're sitting there right now today, you came in and say, Peter, I am that person. I'm living a lie. I'm living a lie. I don't want to. Will you please ask somebody up here just to pray with you? You don't have to tell them what it is. we okay, let's let's we gotta finish this chapter because I can't preach another another Sunday. On this verse twenty four. What does Paul say? What does Paul say? Oh, look up here, look up here, everybody. We're gonna we to finish and a bang here. Okay, just just hang on. okay. So here's what Paul does. Uh, you say the word God. Say the word God in our culture. What do people think about anything? Say God, spirit, force, the power. Say word God and anything, and that was the context of Paul. He didn't come and say, believe in God. He said, here is who God is, and he articulated it. Here's what he says, verse 24. The God, here's the God, who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. First truth, he says, and friends, if you're, if you're taking notes, this is how you talk to your non-Christian friends when they say, who is this God, and how is he different? First, Paul says, he is creator. Very different from the limited gods of the Greeks, many of them who were born and created themselves, and the all-pervasive God of Eastern religions, where, where, where people say God is a part of creation, God is one with creation. Paul comes and says, oh, no, no, God is distinct, apart. He created all of creation. Why is that important? Here's why it's important. Unless you understand God as creator, you don't understand the essential nature of sin. And you don't understand why Jesus Christ had to die. Paul says God is creator. Because I get this question asked all the time. Why did Jesus have to die? Here's the reason why. Paul says God is creator. That means that we are creation. That means He is Lord. That means the essential nature of sin, at the essence of sin, at the end of the day, it's not doing bad things, disobeying laws. It's about living our lives in the place where God deserves to be. Living our lives and the place where God deserves to be. Paul says that if God is creator, he is Lord. That means we were designed to live our lives in radical allegiance to him. Essential nature of sin is not rule-breaking, it's a break-in relationship where we say, God, I take the throne of my life, I take the throne of the universe, I am going to live my life as if I were God. Essential nature of sin, friends, is cosmic treason. It's saying, God... I'm going to live in the place you deserve to be. God is creator. We were created to live in full recognition of who God is and rightly giving our allegiance to him. And Paul says God is supreme Lord, supreme creator. He is setting them up to talk about what it is that Jesus came to do and why he had to do it. Because there's somebody who says, I don't believe in the Bible, so I could live any way I want to. Paul says, I'm going to radically redefine sin for you. You may not do what the Bible says in disobedience, but you're living your life as supreme ruler and Lord, as if you were creator, of creation. Secondly, Paul says, verse 25, and he's not served by human hands if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Think about it, the context. Paul's living in a context where the gods were manipulated. Gods were coerced. Gods were bribed, you know, Animal sacrifice. grain offering. And we sacrifice so we can manipulate God. So uh, here's what our sacrifices today look like. God, I did five quiet times this week. God, I prayed three times this week. God, I read the Bible this week. And those are wonderful things that we should do. But we do them in order to bribe, in order to manipulate. Isn't this the reason why the the whole grace thing is so amazing? God doesn't need grace. Anything. He is perfect. He is perfectly, infallibly, eternally full of himself, and he's great. I know. We go, somebody's full of themselves. We go, well, that's a scoundrel's arrogance. No, no, no. God is perfectly, perfectly, infallibly stuck on himself. Well, that still doesn't sound right, Peter. Think about it. If you're a God and you are perfectly beautiful, perfectly wonderful, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, there's no lack in you. What else would you gravitate towards that which is perfect beauty, ultimate beauty? But the reason why I say this, this is why the whole grace thing makes so much sense is because a God who says, I don't need anything, comes to you and me says, but I want you. Honest, I have a hard time with that one. Because I don't know a single relationship, including my wife's confession time. Where a relationship says, somebody says, I don't need anything from you. You know? My wife loves me to death. And she said, did you clean the bathroom? Did you make your bed? Okay, that sounds like my mom. she doesn't say that. (laughs) Did you make the bed? Not your bed. Did you make the bed? Did you... Peter, will you pick up the kids? Peter, she loves me to death. And the closest thing that I know of unconditional love is with my wife, who looks at me and says, I love you. But at the end of the day, she still at bottom says, but I want some. Here's a God who is perfectly, infallibly, eternally perfect, Michael. And he says to you and me, I don't need anything from you, but I want you. But I want you. But don't you, no, 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 no. He don't need your worship. He don't need your prayers. He don't need your sacrifices. He says, "But I say with me, want you." Wow. But I want. But I want you. You're not worthy. Because you act right, because you behave right. You're not loved because you're valuable. You're valuable, precious, because you're loved. My son has this thing called Wuv Wuv. It's this little cloth book. It's dirty. It's nasty. <laughs> it's worth like $2. When he loses it, he loses it. That dirty, nasty, stinking little book cloth is not valuable because of its worth. It's valuable because of who loves it. I don't need you, but I want you. And then Paul says, from one man he made every man. They shouldn't have it the whole earth. Determines the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him, reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Paul's saying there that God is Lord of history. Not only is he creator, not only is he perfectly with himself, he is Lord of history. He's saying all of history is progressing exactly as God intended. There are no oops moments in God's plan God is intimately involved. He's talking specifically to the Epicureans who said, we believe God is personal, but he's attached. He's remote. And Paul says, unlike what you believe about God, he is transcendent. He is this otherworldly being, but he is imminent. He's close. He is with you. Some of you need to hear this this morning. Listen. When you sit there and all the world, and all the circumstances in life says, God, where are you? Remember this God in Acts 17 that says, I have set the time and the places where you should live. And so remember, child, that my silence is not my absence and my hiddenness is not my abandonment. I am there. I am there, but I can't see. I am there. I am there. And God says, I did this so that men would seek me and reach out for me. Paul says emphatically, you and I were created for God and we have spent three weeks on this. So I'm going to, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. There's within us a God-shaped vacuum and nothing else can satisfy. Your soul, friend, your soul, friend, your soul, friend, Christian or not, is too big for sex to fill. Your soul is too big for relationship to fill. Your soul is too big for career success to fill. Your soul is too big. And I wish I could have some of the older folks here who could say to you, get up today and say, your soul is too big for anything that this world says you need. Because your soul was created for God. So you could search all of your life saying, food, sex, drugs, money, career, and endless pursuit for meaning, for truth, for life. And Paul says, your soul is too big. If you believe this, say amen. If you believe this experientially, because you've been there, done that, say Amen. We all know what this is like. Paul says, We were created to seek him. I'm going to tell you, at the end of today's service, there is going to be, I'm going to do this, I'm going to give an invitation for somebody in this room to follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And you're sitting there going, I came to church today, man, and you don't have no idea how long it's been, and I just did not want to come. Because, Peter, I don't know. I'm scared to death. What are you scared of? that I would miss God. I don't know if I would find God. But I desperately want Him, and I want to say to you today, you are not capable of missing God. The only reason why you're seeking Him, the only reason why you're saying, I want you, I need you, are you there? Is because God has been seeking you first. He is after you. He's been after you. You're not here because your friend brought you and bribed you for lunch. You're here because God set the date The time and the places. You're not capable of missing God. Your sense of his absence, where is he? Is a sign of his presence. He is there. He is there. Head towards the home stretch, Lord. Here we go. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This, by the way, was a quote from a guy named Eretus, a poet of Paul's day in Athens. And Paul, fourth truth that Paul brings out about God, not that he's Lord of history, for he is imminent sustainer of all of creation. Everybody look up here. You need this imagery. Paul says that when God created us, we were created to live under his rule, his reign as God creator. And when we did that, our life cohered. Our life made sense. Our life came together. When men and women decided that they were going to be God, they were going to be God's masters of their own universe, what literally happened was not just, oh, we don't know God. What literally happened was a disintegration began of all of creation, of falling apart. It's interesting how many people walk into my office and say, what's going on? My life is falling apart. The only way that we will find wholeness and healing is not effort, trying harder, church work, prayer, quiet time. Listen, the only way that you will find coherence, the only way you'll find wholeness, in it, the only way that your life will be back put together is if you come and submit and heal yourself to God who is Lord. And as hard and tough as it may be to say, God, that is scary as heck, and I'm going to talk about that, to come and say, Verse 29. Therefore, since you are God's offering, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. People say in our culture, I like to think of God as, or everybody should determine for themselves who they think God is. And I say this a lot in our church. How can a God that is a product of your heart change your heart? How can a God that you fashion in your heart, I like to think of God as, when all yeah. It's the fan. How can that God change your heart if that God is a product of your heart? Paul says, God is not who you think he is, who you want him to be. He is Lord of creation. And repent. And repentance simply is to churn. Go the other way. I'm building my life on this. My soul on this. All of my life I'm searching for this. And God says, "Turn." Churn from worthless emptying idols to god verse 31 for he has said a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead when they heard about the resurrection of the dead some of them sneered again you could just go what the heck what resurrection why would you want to come back when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered but said, we want to see you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a member of others. You know, one of the most common things I get asked about people's hang-up with Christianity is they say, I don't like the idea of God being judge, a justice a wrath, of wrath. Of And I say, okay. One of my favorite authors, N.T. Wright, said, if God doesn't say no to evil, then he is not a good God. He is simply colluding. I say this to a lot of people. I say, okay, so you have a hard time with God of justice. Whatsoever. But would you want to worship a God who turns the other way at men in Thailand who sell 10-year-old girls to prostitution for profit? Would you want to worship a God that says, nah, well, that's kind of bad, but... Would you want to worship a God who looks at what's happening in Darfur and says, well... Would you want to worship a God who looks at the slaughter of innocence of millions? And, and, and most people go, no, no, justice. And I say to them, okay, hold on, because before you cry out for justice, here's the implication, that means that God meets out justice too. But here's the good news. You know why Jesus came? Jesus Christ came because he looked at all the evil, all the injustice, all the wickedness, all the selfish, all the self-centeredness, and he said, I will deal with that once and for all. But he came so that he could deal with it and end evil, suffering, and justice without ending us. Let me put it another way. Andy, you don't want to. How many of you say love is complex? <laughs> I'm sorry Daniel LaSpada's hand just went Phew! I couldn't help but notice Daniel I'm sorry there's like two other people but your hand went up so fast I was like wow you understand me okay love is complex if you truly love somebody it's the whole you can't live with them and you can't live without them you know the whole complexity of love like no why do I bring that up? <laughs> Listen, people in our culture, when we think about, when we think about God, please everybody, look at me, pay attention. People in our culture, when we think about God, most people in our culture say, I just want I I like the whole all loving God. The whole all loving, simple. You know, all He loves everybody. I just love all loving God. To which I, I say a lot like, really, that God would change you? God who loves everybody who didn't have to do that. You. Or we have the God of traditional religion, who's just God of anger. You know? Obey, or I will smite you, God. Right? So God of all love, gentleness, soft, and we've got of anger. You know what the gospel says? The gospel says that Jesus Christ God, creator God, looked down at the earth and you know what he saw? He saw earth filled with idolatry, filled with idolatry in the world, in our hearts. And God looked down and said, I created you for me. He says, I love you. I love you. But I lost you. I love you, but I've lost you. You are giving your souls to that thing and it's emptying you. It's draining you. It's killing your soul. And the God of creation said, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming to rescue you, I'm coming to deliver you, I'm coming, I've lost you, but I I love you, but I lost you, I'm coming. And the Bible says Jesus Christ came, not just to judge, but Jesus Christ came to bear judgment. He came to bear judgment on the cross. God of anger, of wrath, as he looks at evil and injustice. And the God of love and compassion comes together on the cross, on his son. And for our idolatry, for our cosmic treason, instead of judging us and having us pay with our lives, Jesus Christ, the son of God, It's nailed. Let me end with this. Andy, can you can you can you play something a little not so serious? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Like I like, I want to cry. Like I have to I have to finish. Okay, Andy, I have to finish. Okay, I I can't like cry. I gotta finish. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just being honest. Like I'm like I'm choking over my words. Like, can you? you, Much better. better. Sorry. Uh, My son, my son, Parker, Parker, Jenny, and I. When we were, uh, when we were, um, when he was two years old. That's better. 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 It's better. It's better. It's better people can we all focus just a little okay so when, we're, when, when he was two, two years old um, we, we, we basically trained him not to climb the stairs this is our old house because it's pretty steep you know and of course Parker being Parker would get on the stairs and do, 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 you know and we would stop him try to put a gate well one day I was at home and I, I, I looked over and, and noticed he's gone and guess where he was so I caught him like wait top of the stairs I said Parker stop I said come down Here's the problem with two-year-olds. They can go up, they can come down. And I thought, you know, isn't that like with us in life? Like we strive to say I want to be free and we finally get there and we are trapped and we can't get out without help. So Parker's up there and I go, and he looks at me and he stands up, and <laughs> he goes, hold you, which is his way of saying carry me, hold you. And I went about to break. I said, no, Parker, come down. Hold you? No, Parker. Come down. And then it happened. He jumped. And I wasn't about to have that. So I, you know. No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I no, didn't. no, 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 no. I would not. Terrible fear. No oh no I did not do that he jumped he jumped he jumped he asked my wife my, he jumped and it caught me totally by surprise and what did what I do I did the only thing that my natural instinct came to do which is what I held up my arms and I caught him and I held him and the powerful thing about that as I think about that and while I'm talking to some of you is if I ask Parker Parker tell me about God he's two years old Tell me about the existence of the universe, how this thing is all wired up. He doesn't know. Matter of fact, he doesn't even know me. He doesn't know my name. He doesn't know my background. never done a police background check. All he knows is I'm what? His dad. You know why I say that to you? Because it's just truth. It's not about information. You know what truth is? Truth is ultimately about trust. You're sitting here today, I talked about Jesus, absolute truth, all this stuff. You're sitting there going, Peter, I have so many questions. So many unanswered questions. And here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying deny them. What I'm saying is truth is not ultimately got the right information. And I know all the, you know, and then once. No, truth is, I think, more like a relationship where you go, I trust you. Truth is. That's the reason why Jesus took truth from information to relational and didn't say, There's truth, go do it. He said, I am come to me. Here's what that means: if you're not a Christian here this morning and you're sitting going, truth, Jesus, so many questions. All I'm saying is, maybe, just maybe, your discovery of truth is not when you come to understand all of these things and questions that you have, and you ought to study them. Ultimately. It's about jumping into the arms of a creator God who says, I didn't come just to point you to truth. I came to show you as a source of truth. I am utterly trustworthy. We're going to do communion today, and uh, it is for Christians and believers. But as I said earlier, I I, I, I feel the need this morning to give an invitation to anybody in this room, anybody in this room. Listen, listen, listen. Anybody in this room, I am not asking, have you been to church? I'm not asking, have you embraced all aspects of religion? I'm not asking, you know, do you do the right things? I'm not asking, how long have you been to church? I'm asking, listen, I'm asking, have you come to believe that Jesus is God, He is Lord. He has risen from the de- defeating Satan's sin and death once and for all. Maybe the catalyst for you to saying, "I need Jesus," is you're living a lie and you're sick of it. You're tired of it. Maybe the catalyst for you saying, "I need Jesus." as you reach reached the end of your rope, say, I've got no other place to go. In our church, when we give an invitation for people to become Christian, follower of Jesus, I prefer to call it, when you come up, we have other people who will surround you, hug you, pray with you, pray for you, because we believe that becoming a Christian is not just a moment in time where we go, yes, I believe it, I'm good. It's a moment in time and then a long life journey of people coming alongside you, loving on you, praying with you, praying for you, because that's how Christian life was meant to be lived. Who will be right there with you. So this morning, in this room, in this room, is there anybody, any, you're sitting there right now, is there anybody who says, I need, want Jesus, this Lord creator? And if you're afraid of coming up by yourself and you came with friends, you can come up with them as well. Right now, right now, wherever you are sitting, if there's anybody who says, I want Follow Jesus. Get up. Come on up. Join me up here. Pray with you. Pray for you. And other people in our church will come up. Pray with you. Pray for you. If you're a Christian in our church, keep your eyes open. You just be praying right now that God would do his work. Don't be scared. You'll never regret this decision. Is there anybody in this building today? Stand up here for a second. Is there anybody else? We are going to pray soon. Some of you guys come up and join us. What's your name? Tolly. Some of you guys come up and join us. I know Grace, you've been in this life. When I say some of you come up and join, I'm asking those folks who are saying, I will pray, I will walk, I will journey with my brother. God, I thank you and I praise you for your grace and your mercy. Father, as as grace weeps up here and as I I sense the the amazing joy in, in her, I thank you for her and I thank you for the way that you have used her. I thank you for the love, the compassion, the care, the relationship and the example, example of Jesus that she is and she has been. In this young man's life. Been able to see this from afar, and it's an amazing testimony. And Father, we pray, we pray this morning for your precious son, your precious son, your precious son. Thank you for his boldness, thank you for his courage, thank you, God, for his willingness to say, Jesus. I want him. Jesus, I need him. Jesus. And God, with these brothers and sisters that are up here, we welcome him to the family of God. We welcome him into the family of God. Church, can we clap? We welcome him into the family of God. We welcome him to the family of God. Amen and amen and amen. And God, I pray right now, I pray right now for us as a church, our whole church, not just the men and women that are up here who will call him, who will meet with him, who will have dinners with him and lunches and coffees and, and be in his life, pour in their lives into his life. I pray for these men and women, but us as a church, God, that we would be the embodiment of your kingdom, that we would be this radical, alternate, counter-cultural community that welcomes and embraces everybody on this journey walking alongside of them, answering questions, picking them up when they fall down. And being there late at night to let him know that he is loved. That he is loved. God, be with him, Holy Spirit. And the truth that have been planted in his heart, we pray that it would bear fruit, take root. Church, the Bible says even when one person comes and crosses a line of faith and from kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light, all of heaven and all of angels, words of Jesus, we rejoice and we celebrate today. Amen and amen. Amen, amen and amen. Make sure, make sure you leave and talk with some of us before you go home, okay? okay. Communion service, please come. Everybody, will you bow your heads with me? I'm going to bless the elements as the worship team leads us. Prayer team, pastoral staff, please come on up. Stand in front. As men and women, before and after communion, if they need prayer, they want prayer, they'll come and talk to you. They'll come and have you pray over them. Please, please, please be mindful of what we talked about today. Pray truth over them. Listen, love on them, care for them. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you whenever you do it. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me. This is the blood, the blood of Christ that was shed. The blood that opens the door, paves the way for us now to enter the throne room of God with confidence and joy. He has made the way. Anybody need healing? Anybody need to be set free from addictions? Anybody want to begin living life of truth and you need prayer? Come on up. Come up whenever you're ready. The Lord invites us to the table. Hallelujah. Church, are you thankful for who God is and what he has done? When we clap and give worship for our God, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. You are God's child, you are God's people. You are blessed, you are loved, you are empowered by his spirit. Go forth this week. Let your joy radiate as you live your life for his kingdom and the gospel. Take care, you guys.